0: We're looking at 1 Corinthians verses 1 to 17 this morning. My, my original plan for this morning was to go back and finish up our series on Acts 2 that we were, we were working on and look at how the community of, of Jesus followers in Acts 2 were devoted to prayer. And then next Sunday we were going to begin this new series on 1 Corinthians. But looking at the beginning of 1 Corinthians and its message, And a week and a half ago or so, thinking about the big decision that we were going to be making today, had we had the forum, our congregational meeting, I thought, wow, this passage is really going to speak to where we're at. And I still think it does, even though now the forum isn't happening. I think it's still really relevant. And I certainly don't want to diminish the importance of prayer, but I thought we would just continue with the plan to jump ahead a week and get into the beginning of 1 Corinthians right away. Because what we see right here in the first 17 verses of 1 Corinthians is an excellent example by the Apostle Paul of how to handle tensions well. Tensions in relationships. Not that we have a lot of huge tensions at CBC and not that we haven't been working hard to work through the ones we have in a healthy way. But just because I need a reminder, I think we all need a reminder and part of that reminder is that relationships invariably have tensions, right? It's, it's not good or bad, it just is. When Ann and I got married, this was one of the first things I had to begin to learn because I don't like, I like peace, I like harmony. But when you're in a relationship with other people, even people as wonderful as my wife, other people will do things to annoy you or evidently you'll do things to annoy them. (laughs) And you'll disappoint one another, and you'll hurt one another. And so you wind up feeling frustrated and angry and hurt from time to time. And my temptation early in our marriage was to keep quiet about what I was feeling and to bottle it up, to stuff it down, and act like everything was okay to keep the peace. Of course, Anne knew everything wasn't okay. She says she can tell I'm angry when my lips get all thin. (laughs) And what I had to learn was that if I'm bottling up my real feelings, pretending everything's okay, when it isn't, it kills the intimacy in the relationship. I shut down emotionally. I feel cold. I feel distant. And so I've had to learn that conflict and tension is okay. The question is, are we going to work through it in a healthy way, right? And Anne and I are still learning to do that. It takes practice. It's not easy. It's messy, but as we've grown in it, it's totally been worth it. Well, in today's passage, the apostle Paul gives us a great example of how to handle tensions well, because the the reason he's writing the letter of First Corinthians to the church in Corinth is because he and they are experiencing significant tension. Paul loved this community of people. Several years before, he had traveled to the city of Corinth, where they lived, and he had introduced them to Jesus, much like Paul and Claire are going to be doing this summer. He had spent a long time there, longer than in most places, getting to know them, leading them, talking to the city about Jesus, And mentoring and discipling those who had decided to follow Jesus, helping them to get grounded as a community of people following Jesus together. Well, it didn't take long after Paul left for things not to go well among the Corinthians. And for Paul's relationship with them to become strained. And when you read through the letter of 1 Corinthians, which I encourage you to do as we begin this series over the summer, you see a lot of these problems crop up, and you see how Paul responds to each one in his letter. A lot of practical things we're going to see as the weeks go on. And, and you also learn that, that before th- this letter, Paul had also written to the Corinthians a previous letter, probably from Ephesus. And um, they, the Corinthians had written him a letter, possibly in reply. And these previous attempts at communication by letter did not go well. They didn't help. In fact, they made things worse. In the letter the Corinthians wrote to Paul, which Paul will refer to and address throughout 1 Corinthians, their attitude was arrogant. They were arguing with him. They were stubbornly justifying some behaviors that Paul had said were clearly very wrong and damaging. And then in addition... Paul has received a report from some people he says are from Chloe's household. Now, our best guess is that Chloe, whoever this person is, was with Paul, maybe in Ephesus, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And Chloe had probably sent some workers or some family members to Corinth on business. And and while there, they had visited the disciples in Corinth. And when they got back, they told Paul, you won't believe, Paul, what's going on there And they gave Paul a report which has just further alarmed and concerned him. And so that's why Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is actually, just to confuse things, his second letter to the Corinthians. But we don't have the first one, so for us it's 1 Corinthians. And Paul writing this letter is not at all happy. He is frustrated, he is hurt, he is angry, he's disappointed, and probably the hardest part is is that some, not all, but some of the loudest voices over there in Corinth have turned very much against Paul. They're criticizing him. They're rejecting him. And so if you're Paul, how do you handle that? As a leader who's who's founded this group of people, how do you handle the tension and the conflict that you're now experiencing with them? Well, today we begin to find out as he begins this letter. And the way I'd like to do this is to walk through the first 17 verses again and commenting on them here and there. And along the way, there are three places that I want to stop and look in a bit more detail because there, there, uh, there, these are three main lessons that I think will be helpful for us from this passage. So, okay, let's start at the beginning. Paul writes, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. Now, right off, what we need to know is that Paul is dictating this letter out loud as it's being written. And Sosthenes is probably the one writing it down for him. That's how letter writing worked in the ancient world. And along the way, Paul and Sosthenes, they might pause, they might discuss how to say something, how to word it. Sosthenes might ask for some clarification of what Paul means or say, Uh, How about I word it this way? Paul's the author. Sosthenes is most likely the scribe. And he has some input on the final words that go on the page. So Paul mentions Sosthenes right up front. Then he continues in verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Here Paul's reminding these followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth, you are special. God has called you to be a part of his holy people. You're special to God. You belong to God now. And now you serve a new Lord, Jesus Christ. You belong to him and he's making you into a certain kind of people. And I'm his representative, so listen to what I have to say about this. Then in verse 3, we have uh, the standard way that Paul and other Christians greet one another. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 4, Paul begins, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, With all kinds of speech and with all wisdom. Now, these verses to me are astounding. You read them, and it's easy just to skip right over them, they're just sort of preamble until you realize why Paul's writing this letter. These people have hurt him deeply. They're rejecting his leadership, some of them anyway. They're criticizing him. Their church is a mess. They've got all kinds of problems. And Paul begins by being thankful for them. I wonder how hard it was for Paul to dictate those words. (laughs) To thank God for these people. And not only that, but to spell out, to list out, what about them he's thankful for. That God has enriched them and given them gifts. Gifts of speech, gifts of knowledge, all kinds of gifts like this. We'll find out more about these gifts as the letter continues. And what we'll find out is that um, they have gifts of knowledge and wisdom. They have gifts of prophecy and tongues. They're what we would call today a charismatic church. And what we're going to find out is that it's these gifts that, because of the way they're, they're abusing them, are what's causing a lot of the problems in the church. And they're causing problems with Paul and for Paul. They're arrogant about these gifts. They think they're more spiritual than anyone else, even Paul, because they have these gifts. They're haughty, they're disdainful, and yet Paul thanks God for them. And Paul thanks God for their gifts. It's not the gifts that are the problem, it's the lack of character of the people using the gifts. It's the way they're misusing the gifts. And so Paul gives thanks that they have these gifts. And Paul gives thanks for them. And so here we see the first lesson for us, for you and me, about how to handle tension well. Gratitude for others. Taking time to see people how God sees them and to see what's good about them. Because just about anyone you've ever been mad at There's something good about them. And so Paul takes time to be grateful for these people and to remember and to say out loud what he's specifically grateful for. When Ann and I were early in our marriage, we went through some tough times and we were struggling to learn how to communicate. We were trying to work through some tough conflicts and disagreements and differences. And one of the things we we learned to do was to take time to sit down periodically and say, here's what I appreciate about you. Here's what I like. Here's what I find attractive. Here, let me remember why I wanted to marry you. (laughs) And, And we would say those things specifically out loud to each other. And we didn't know it at the time, now we know, brain science has taught us that when we take time to be grateful, to be thankful, it actually turns on and warms up the relational circuits of our brains. So we can, the the word that Gannon Sims, when he was here last week, used, um, so we can be tender. So we could be tender to each other instead of just angry or resentful when we weren't getting along. So gratitude, this is what Paul is doing here. He's being grateful right at the beginning of his letter. And it's an important skill and practice that we need if we're going to handle tensions well. Continuing now in verse 6. You've been given all these gifts, verse 6, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. And here I wonder if Paul can't resist just a subtle jab maybe at them. He's saying, I think, see, we we shared the good news about Jesus with you. I did. The team that was with me did. We we taught you about Jesus. And in response, God gave you all these gifts, just proving that God was with us when we did that. (laughs) That we're his legit representatives. See how God confirmed our message? So why are you turning on us now? Paul doesn't say that, but I wonder, you know, if it's in his mind. Well, Paul continues verse 7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And after reading through 1 Corinthians and... um, Let me just read the letter. And all that's going on. And, and, and that's the second lesson that, that we see here about handling tensions. Yeah, I think the one mic went off, so hopefully we're switching over to the other. The second lesson is, is about having hope for other people's growth and restoration and hope for the relationship and the future of the relationship. Even though things are a mess now in Corinth, even though they're turning against him there, even though Paul's facing huge setbacks in in what he hoped would happen with this church, he still has hope for better days ahead and for a happy ending to the Corinthian story. Paul's resilient as a leader. He's persistent, not just because he's bold and tenacious and, to be perfectly honest, bullheaded, right? But also because of verse 9, God is faithful, he tells them, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul can weather his own disappointment with this people because of his hope and his vision of what God can, can do for them, a faithful God, and what God can do in them in the future. You know, in doing marriage counseling, one of the the things that I've learned to pay attention to when a couple is struggling is, do they have hope for the future of their relationship? Do they have hope that things can improve? Do, Do they have hope that they'll get through what they're struggling with and things will be better on the other side? Because if people have hope, then there's energy there and there's a will there to work on hard things. But if they lose hope, and if they can't get that hope back, then the, the battle is almost lost because the will to keep trying just isn't there. Well, Paul has hope, and he has vision for a way through these tensions and these problems for growth and for maturity among the Corinthians and for better days ahead. All right, now in verse 10, Paul dives into the meat of the letter i appeal to you brothers and sisters in the name of our lord jesus christ that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought here we see there's there's disunity in this church there are faction there there are quarrels how does paul know verse 11 my brothers and sisters some from chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, maybe the super spiritual ones, I follow Christ. Now, what do we have here? What what are the tensions? What's the source of disagreement? Well, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, also known as Peter, none of them are in Corinth, at this point they are all leaders teachers who have visited Corinth in the past probably and left an impression but none of them had visited with the intention of causing divisions none of them came undermining or criticizing Paul or one another no they're all Paul's allies but the Corinthians are experiencing division among themselves, and they're rallying around these leaders, these big names to justify their conflicting perspectives. Like if you and I were arguing about whether the Yankees or the Mets were the best team right now, right? I mean, clearly, it- we know the answer, but well, we can talk about it afterwards. <laughs> but but um, I'm like, I'm with Aaron Judge. And you're like, well, I'm with Pete Alonzo. You know, it's not that Judge and Alonzo are encouraging us to be divided. It's that we're arguing and in the course of arguing, we're rallying around these heroes and lifting them up because they represent our cause or we think they do. And, And that's something like what the Corinthians were doing. And here's the important thing to realize. Many of these factions very likely are against Paul. The Apollos crowd, the Cephas or Peter crowd, maybe even the Christ crowd. Meanwhile, there are some others who are defending Paul. They're the Paul crowd. So you have all these divisions, and which group is right? Well, if you're Paul, who's right? The Paul crowd, right? (laughs) At least that would be human nature to think that, to side with the people who are siding with you, who are lifting you up, who recognize your wisdom, who know that you're right, who are faithful to you. I remember one time, years ago, there, there was another leader um, that was kind of rubbing me the wrong way, and I was kind of annoyed with them. But then one time in a meeting, something came up, and this person, this leader, they defended me. They, they stuck up for me. And I thought, hey, maybe I like this person after all. <laughs> They're not so bad, right? That's human nature. But, but here, here's where we see just how mature and just how amazing Paul's character is. Because Paul won't even side with the Paul crowd. He won't side with those who agree with him and are championing him. Because Paul realizes it's not about him. And the real issue is not who wins or which side is right. The real issue is all of them being unified. Them learning to love each other. And finding their unity in one place only, in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then verse 14, this is one of the most shocking things Paul ever says. Verse 14, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you, except Christus and Gaius. Seriously, Paul, you're glad you didn't baptize these people? Why would Paul say such a thing? Paul, who's so passionate to see everybody repent and believe and start following Jesus, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you? Paul's been driven to say this because they're making him the issue and Cephas and Apollos the issue. They're dividing up and they've lost focus on the main thing. And that it's, that's that it's all about Jesus Christ and being united in him. And so that's Paul's third lesson to us about how to handle tensions. We've got to keep our focus straight. It's not about us. It's about Christ and being unified around Christ alone. Paul continues in verse 14. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. And then he remembers another one he baptized or maybe Sosthenes reminds him. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. (laughs) Let's get on with the letter. Uh, Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Boy, I'll tell you again, Paul has a much bigger heart and a much more godly heart than I do yet. Paul can manage not to get wrapped up in these conflicts even though people are making it personally about him, even though he strongly disagrees with the other sides, even though they're criticizing him and they're rejecting him and his leadership as we'll see later in the letter. Yet Paul doesn't get defensive. He doesn't side with anyone. He doesn't even want anyone to side with him. He just wants everyone to unify around one thing, and that's getting their focus back on Jesus together. Worshiping Jesus, lifting up Jesus, being led by Jesus. Isn't that a good word for all of us? Who gave us, who, who gave his life for us? Who was crucified for us? Who deserves our allegiance and our affection and our attention? Only Jesus. I've had to remember that in these past weeks. It's, it's not about this side or, or that side or this idea or that idea. Sure those things matter and I have my opinions about them, but ultimately it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about us as Barbara expressed this morning, it's about our unity in Jesus and that Christ is the only one who died for any of us. And then right here at, at the end in verse 17, we get a hint of the reason that the Corinthians are, are turning against Paul. The message that he brought, his, his approach, his, his ministry, the way he preached the gospel was not with wisdom or eloquence, Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We're gonna get into this a lot more in, in detail in the coming weeks, but in a nutshell, here's here's the problem with the Corinthians. They value the beautiful people. For them, money talks. Fame, power, that's what matters. Not that they all aspire to be beautiful or rich or famous or powerful. Some of them are slaves and apprentices and other low-status people in that culture. Um, And so some of them know they can never have that or be that, but they look up to the people who are. Like the middle-aged mom who, who doesn't have the figure or the complexion or the wardrobe, like those she's reading about in her favorite magazines, but she idolizes them nonetheless. Or the teen who doesn't have friends or followers themselves, but they hang on every word of their favorite social media uh, influencer. It's just the way of the world, plain and simple. It it always has been, it always will be. The goal is to get to the top. However, our culture or our subculture defines the top. And, And so we idolize those who are at the top. We wish we were like them. We compare ourselves to them. We compare other people to them. For the Corinthians back in that culture, it was honor and status that everyone was chasing. And the way you got there in that culture was you made the right connections with the right well-placed people. Or you got there by your philosophical wisdom and your eloquence. We'll talk more about this next week. Those are the things that mattered. That's what separated the cool kids from the losers in Corinth or the successes from the failures. And here comes Paul, and and he's not that eloquent by their sophisticated Greek standards. I mean, just read his letters. It's like, oh, we're still trying to understand what he's trying to say. And, and, And what he's preaching to them is utter foolishness. It's about a guy named Jesus, who lived not in Corinth or Rome or Alexandria, which were the New York's and the Washingtons and the Los Angeles's of the ancient world. No, Jesus came from where? Some small out of the way corner of the empire from some conquered people. In fact, by Greek standards, Jesus came from a barbarian people. And what did Jesus do? Well, nothing worth mentioning in Corinth, an important place like that. Nothing successful, nothing noteworthy. No, just the opposite. Jesus got himself crucified by the Roman Empire, which was the worst thing, the most terrible thing anyone could imagine. Jesus was a victim, a loser, a failure, a nobody. And here Paul is saying that that this is how God is rescuing the whole world? It's how God is saving everything. Well, that message doesn't add up at all. It just goes against everything the Corinthians have ever heard. And as their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers hear it, they're like, "Seriously? You believe that. You're giving up your life for that. You're leaving us and our religions and our associations for that rubbish? Are you crazy? That's crazy. You're a loser. And so the Corinthians are thinking twice about the cross now. And saying, I I think I want to be a Christian, but not that kind of Christian. Not the Paul kind of Christian. Sure, I want grace. I want forgiveness from God. But I don't want a Savior or a Lord who got crucified on a cross I want a Christianity that makes me cool. That that helps me get ahead. That helps me climb the social ladder so there's there's more in it for me. And so they're turning on Paul because he won't shut up about this crucifixion business. And, And Paul's brand of crucifixion glorying in this. And in the process, they're turning on the gospel. They're turning away from the cross. And as a result, before they're long. They're turning on each other. Because guess what? When, when, when all we're left with, or what, what are we left with when we turn away from the way of the cross? What are we left with when we forget that love is the most important thing? And, and that God, who so loved us, died on a cross for us. And what are we left with when we forget that that's how we're called to love one another? Not in some sentimental way, not a Disney kind of love, but but in the way God loved us. Through servanthood, through giving everything up, through a cross, putting aside our honor, our advancement, to wash the feet of one another, to seek what's best for each other, to sacrifice for what's best for each other. What happens when we forget that? Well, we're only left with ourselves and our agenda and our achievements and our way and our opinion. And pretty soon, because yours is different from mine, there's tension and we're divided. And Paul is like, no, leave the way of Jesus, leave the gospel of the cross and you'll be defeated. You're back to being part of of this world's problems rather than part of God's answer to the world's problems. Because God has only one answer to this world, and it's found in the cross and in the way of the cross. And it's foolishness to the world. But let me ask you, how well is the world doing, doing it its own way? So let's glory in the cross, foolish though it is, Christ alone was crucified for us, for each of us. Not not you, you weren't crucified. Not me, I wasn't crucified. Not the people you like with or agree with, only Christ. So let's all find our unity in him as Paul's heartbeat for the people of Corinth and for his people ever since. Let's pray. God, God, Thank you for this reminder. I know it's one I've needed in the past few weeks. Thank you for pointing us, pointing all of us back to you. Thank you for showing us how to love and for doing it so well that it cost you everything. And then you said, now if I, your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so I pray, um, as we study 1 Corinthians, that you would rally us around the cross. And as we're scandalized afresh with its foolishness and the scandal of it, that we would understand, like Paul did, the sweetness and the glory, and that it's the only way for this world. And that we would experience it afresh and have fresh motivation to share it with others, even though it may come across as foolish.